Our mission at Cross Point Baptist Church, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. We are going to continue in our series through the New Testament book of Acts. We've been calling this series the action of the church. In case you're wondering, we're coming towards the the home stretch. We have uh, this message and then, Lord willing, two more, and then we'll begin a new series. And this message I'm calling uh, Pleading for the Gospel. I think you'll see why I call it that. Uh, But if you want to open your Bibles, uh, turn to Acts 24. We're going to look at the last verse in 24 and go all the way through chapter 26. But I heard a, a, a saying that goes like this. The saying is, we make our plans and God, he breaks them. Is that anybody's experience in life? Uh, you know, for maybe me growing up, you know, I had these great plans. I'm going to have a nice little family, a house, a white picket fence, 2.3 children, however that works out, a retirement package. And then you fast forward half a generation, and your life looks nothing like what you planned, right? Am I the only one? Okay, I'm all alone. Thanks for leaving me high and dry. No, I know that that was your experience too. Now, now God loves you. And he's got a wonderful plan for your life, but I'm thinking his plan is not your plan. In fact, rarely is his plan, if never, his plan, our plan. I mean, for example, picture the little old Apostle Paul. Growing up, he wasn't Paul. He was Saul of Tarsus. And I'm sure growing up, he thought, you know what, when I grow up, I'm going to be a Pharisee of Pharisees. I'm going to be the who's who in Judaism. That's what he thought. He thought he was going to get a good education and grow up to, to re- lead religious services of, of Judaism. And if you know the story, one day he's on the road to Damascus. He saw a bright light. And then the Lord Jesus changed everything for him in an instant. And then Saul of Tarsus goes on to become the Apostle Paul and plant churches all over the known world. But that wasn't Paul's plan, was it? He didn't say, hey, when I grow up, this is what, I'm going to be a rabbi, I'm going to convert to Christianity, and then I'm going to get beat up. A lot. Okay, that's not, that was not Paul's plan. But Paul made his plans, and God changed them. And then Paul would go on to travel all over the known world, and, and he would start churches that were all about the same Jesus that he used to hate. Amazing, right? Well, at this point in the book of Acts... Paul's on trial again. And so we're going to read about the third and fourth trial of the Apostle Paul. And none of that was, was his plan, was it? So with that, read Acts 24, verse 27. It says, When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So Felix was the first governor in charge while Paul stood in front of them and was on trial for for what he believed. And he was left in jail to do the Jews a favor. And then comes the next governor on the scene, a man by the name of Porcius Festus. Now historians tell it that, that this guy was not as corrupt as the guy before, but he's still not a real great guy as far as Christianity goes. Okay, um, he wasn't as corrupt, but let's say it this way. He didn't take real kindly to any of the spiritual or religious stuff. Festus's uh, main focus was to make sure that Rome stayed in power. And he ruled the area in a way to make sure that happened. So here's the accusers of Paul. Picture it. They're saying that, that Paul was in the temple and he's trying to start a riot to overthrow the government. And that's a lie. 
We know this is a lie from the trials. And Festus, again, is not going to be real hot on the Apostle Paul, even though what's being said about him is a lie. Read Acts 25, verse 1. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the providence, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. They urged him, asking for a favor against Paul, that he summoned him to Jerusalem because they planned an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, let the man of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong with the man, let's bring, uh, let them bring charges against him. And so you need to recognize that there's been a two-year span of time between chapter 24 and chapter 25. I don't know about you, but so often I, I read in my Bible and I turn the page in my head. I'm thinking, and the next day, such and such happened. No, it's been two years. It's been two years since the Jews beat up Paul. and They tried to, to kill him um, because they supposed he brought a Gentile into the temple. Two years ago. Paul gave his testimony to these exact same men at his trial. Two years ago, Paul was put into prison, um, really by his protection, by Claudius Lysias. Two years have passed by since that trial in Caesarea that was essentially thrown out of, of court because there was no evidence. Two years have gone by. And Paul is, is still in prison. And think about it. None of this is the plan of Paul. I need to say something else about this. It's two years, and these men are still breathing threats and hatred against Paul. And really, that tells you a lot about the condition of the human heart. Because two years can go by, and these men still want what they want. That means that you can hate somebody so much that two years can go by, and you just can't let it go. After all, these Jewish leaders, they're after Paul, and they want him dead. And they're willing to kill him in an ambush. They'll do anything to, to silence the Apostle Paul, even though they have no charges. It's already been tried twice. So they're going to try a third time and then a fourth time. We're going to look at it in this chapter. Look what happens. Acts 25, verse 6. After he stayed among them, uh, not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat at the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. And so here's Paul, and he's on trial again. And the Sanhedrin are are hurling these accusations at him again. Now, I don't know if this happened. I just picture that it did, that maybe they're, they're saying all these accusations, and Paul did this, and Paul did that, and Paul just standing in the corner just rolling his eyes going, it's the same old tired song, guys. You didn't have anything the first or the second trial, but here we are at it again. Verse 8, Paul argued in his defense, neither against the, the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried these charges before me? And so they're in a court of law, and Paul is defending himself. And his defense is basically, I didn't do it. 
He says, in fact, none of these things do I be accused of, did I do? And he adds on, the, the eyewitnesses aren't here to convict me. The eyewitnesses can't come and testify that I did these things because they don't exist. But, the, but Luke tells us that Festus wanted to do the Jews a favor, kept Paul in prison. And so really, Festus is not unlike Felix very much because Felix left Paul in prison because he wanted to do the Jews a favor. And now here, Festus, he's wanting to do the same thing. But he asked Paul, hey, do you want to go up to Jerusalem and be charged? Now remember, Paul's already been there. He's already been to, to Jerusalem, and he stood trial before Claudius Lysias. He stood on the, the staircase of the Antonio Fortress, and he stood trial for, to Felix after that. And so Paul has been through all of this already. But now it's Festus' turn to do the Jews a favor, so he says, okay, Let's have this trial in Jerusalem. But he says, hey, the Sanhedrin won't try you. I will try you myself. Verse 10 of Acts 25. But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. For then I am a wrongdoer, and I've committed anything for which I deserve to die. I do not uh, seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to the charges against me, no one can give me up to them, I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you will go. So Paul, he looks this governor in the eye and he says, I'm innocent and you know it. And then Paul says, you know, we've been through this before. And, and these guys are saying, I'm not fit to live. And then Paul says, I am willing to die if I've done anything wrong. He says, I appeal to Caesar. What happens is Paul draws a line in the sand. And he says, I appeal to Caesar. I want my case to go to the highest court in the land. Essentially, he says, that's it. I can't take it anymore. I stands all I can stands. I can't stands no more. I want to go to Caesar. You see, Paul wanted justice to be done. And also, he was a man that was not afraid to die. And Paul said something that every single Roman citizen had the right to say. I appeal to Caesar. And so, with that, that means his case is going to go to the Supreme Court. In Paul's case, it's going to go to the emperor himself. And Festus essentially said, will you appeal to Caesar, then to Caesar you will go. As, Paul is, as soon as Paul said, I appeal to Caesar, he just punched his ticket to Rome. Do you remember what the Lord Jesus said to Paul? There's a day when Jesus appeared to Paul and says, hey, you're going to give a testimony to me in Jerusalem. And you're going to tell everybody in Jerusalem what I have done. And then he says, you know what? And you're also going to Rome. Well, at this moment, Paul knows he's going to Rome. But what's really wild when you think about it is the Caesar that he's about to stand before. Paul is going to appeal his case to Caesar Nero. Do you know about Caesar Nero? I'll say it like this. He is a lunatic. Caesar Nero is a full-blown nut job because he would capture Christians, he would dip Christians in tar, tie them to a stake, and use them as giant candles to light his garden at night. Okay, Caesar Nero had a young boy that I'm not even going to mention what he did with that. Leave that for your own study. But he's nuts. 
I am sugarcoating it to the nth degree about how bad Nero is. And this is what Paul's saying. Let me go stand before that guy. If, if you're going to stand trial, picture it, you're going to go to trial. Do you want a nut job like Nero to hold your life in your hand? To decide whether you live or to die? That's exactly what Paul did. When Paul said, I'm not afraid to die, he meant it. This is what I think is going in Paul's head. I think Paul's thinking, he's like, this is going to go 50-50. Either it's going to go really, really good, or it's going to go really, really bad. Now, Paul's not afraid to die. But this is what I really think is going on in Paul's head. Paul's thinking, you know what? If I go to Rome, and if I preach to Nero, maybe Nero will get saved. And if Nero gets saved, maybe the whole world will get saved. Remember the day when Paul said, I would go to hell for all eternity if my countrymen, the Jews, would accept Jesus as the Messiah? Paul said that in the book of Romans. Well, here I think he's living it out. He was so kingdom-minded that he wanted the whole world to know about Jesus. Well, if Nero becomes a Christian, well, then very possibly he'll make it the religion of the state to where everybody has to hear the gospel. And... Everybody might get saved. Why? Because Paul was willing to risk his life and preach to Nero. Here's the deal. I mean, think about it. Think of the most despicable, wicked human being you could think of. Give you a second to kind of come to mind with somebody. Ratchet up a couple notches. That's Nero. And Paul said, I'll preach to Nero. And maybe Nero will get saved. Here's my first point this morning, if you're apt to taking notes. Point number one. There was no one beyond the grace of God. I need you to know it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter wherever you've been or, or who you are. There is no one that's beyond the grace of God. That if anyone will recognize their sin and turn from their sin and recognize Jesus as the Savior and place faith in Him, by grace they've been saved. Because after all, if God can save Nero, He can save any, anybody. But sadly, that's not what's going to happen in Nero's case. Nero eventually will take Paul's life. Not right away. Paul will go to Rome. And he will be there two years. Eventually, he'll be let out. And then he'll be rearrested. He'll be tried. Eventually, Paul is taken to a road outside of Rome. And he loses his head. He gives his life for the gospel. But here is where Paul is wise above any of us here. That he knows where he's at in life is all by the providence and sovereignty of God. Paul knows that all the trials, that's God's plan. All the, all the beatings, all the scourgings, all the shipwrecks and everything that Paul is going to, all the lies are being told about him, it's all by the plan of God. Why? So that a nut job like Nero will hear the gospel. That's why. So a decrepit sinner like Nero will have a chance to accept Jesus as a Savior. Keep reading. Acts 25, verse 13. It says, Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived in Caesarea and greeted Festus. As they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left a prisoner by Felix. And when I was... In Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders and the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that there was not the, the custom of the Romans to give up anyone, 
before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charges laid against him. So when they came together, here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charges in the case as such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had a certain points of dispute uh, with him about their own religion, about a certain Jesus who was dead, but Paul asserted to be alive. Hear the gospel there? Verse 20. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. So this king is King Herod Agrippa II. I don't know about you, but I read the New Testament, I read the book of Acts, and it's real easy to get all the, the Herods mixed up. But this Herod is really easy to remember, because this is the last Herod. Okay? Uh, his dad was King Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa I, he's the guy that had a sword and, and ran James, the brother of John, through and killed him. And then when he found out that that really pleased the, the Jews, he had Peter in prison. He was going to do it to Peter too, but... Peter escaped from the prison back in Acts chapter um, 12, I think it was. Well, then, this is the, the Herod. You know, this Herod's dad is the one that was eaten by worms. And then, so that means his grandpa was Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is the guy that had John the Baptist beheaded because his stepdaughter did a dance for him. And so also, that means great-grandpa was Herod the Great. And that's the guy that killed all the baby boys in Bethlehem under two years of age. Great family heritage, right? Well, that's the Herods. When this Herod's dad died, Herod, um, when Herod Agrippa I died in Attack of the Worms back in, earlier in the uh, book of Acts, Herod Agrippa II was only 17 years old. And so when everybody figured, hey, it's, he's not old enough to rule Judea, what they did was they put some governors in charge. And so they had governors like Fex Festus and Felix ruling until he became of age. And then when he became of age, they would give him the reins. What that really means is Agrippa has had lots of exposure to Christianity. Because he's lived in this area. His whole family has been interacting with Christians all this time. So King Agrippa II, he knows of the crucifixion. He knows of the, the resurrection. And so he comes, and he's coming to, to visit, but please notice who's with him. Luke tells us Agrippa comes with Bernice. Okay, Bernice is Agrippa's sister. Okay, Bernice is the daughter of Herod Agrippa I. You see, she was married to somebody else, and then that guy died, and now she's come back, and she's living with her brother. And there's lots and lots of rumors about this being an incestuous relationship. And the rumors are right. Okay? After hearing about Nero, you're thinking, it can't get any worse. And the people in the Bible are like, hold on to your hats. We're going to go even deeper. Um, Herod Agrippa II is really not unlike all the other wackadoo Herods you read about. What's even more weird is that every time his name is mentioned, his sister's name is mentioned right after Read in Acts 25, verse 13. It says, Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived in Caesarea and greeted Festus. Acts 25, verse 23. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. Acts 26, verse 30. 
Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. So if you really want to know who King Herod Agrippa II is, just read that phrase, and Bernice. And that tells you everything you really don't want to know about this man. A little side note about Bernice, as if it's not bad enough as it is, in the future she's going to move to Rome. And she's going to be involved with a bunch of different men, but then she's always going to go back to her brother. But eventually she's going to go to Rome and she's going to become the mistress of an emperor and his son. And then that son is Emperor Vespian. Vespian is the guy that's going to order the destruction of Israel in AD 70. When you really know the backstory, you're like, that's how we know the Bible is true. Because you can't make this stuff up. Somebody has to actually do this because nobody is crazy enough to just write about this. Somebody has to actually do it. Anyways, Acts 25, verse 30, uh, 21. It says, But when Paul had appealed, uh, had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man for myself. Tomorrow... Uh, tomorrow, said he, you will listen to him. So the next day, Agrippa and Bernice, there it is, came with great pomp and entered the audience hall with the military tribunal and the prominent men of the city. Then, uh, then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. I want you to notice that word pomp. It's a really interesting word in the Greek. It's the word fantasia. Is where we get our English word fantasy from. I think when we really read this, what's going on, this brother-sister combo like to cosplay, if you know what that's about. If you're a fan of the Hunger Games, they're from the capital city, and, and, and the, these are the other prominence. Well, I think when the authors of the Hunger Games wrote, they were ripping off the Bible, because that's exactly who these people are. And so here, here's the king, and he probably has some crazy outfit on, and his sister too. And they probably even dressed up Festus in some weird little outfit. And they've all come to hear the Apostle Paul. Now picture the scene, if you will. There's the, the king with all his pomp and the, the flash, and then there's little old peasant Paul. And, and there's the pompous king and the prisoner Paul, who are eyeball to eyeball. They're face-to-face, nose-to-nose. You couldn't have two more different individuals because one is in his royal robe and the other in his peasant garment. One is absolutely free to make any decision he wish and the other one is absolutely subject to the king. And so you got King Agrippa in this goofy outfit. I'm sure all the crowd is ooing and aahing because, oh, here comes the king. But in this courtroom, the most important person is not the king. The most important person is the little old Apostle Paul. He's not intimidated by the least by this king or the governor who really have his life in their hands. So remember this, the pomp, and and here comes the meeting, and this is what Festus says. Look in Acts 25, verse 24. And Festus said, King Agrippa, all who are present with us, see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petition me both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. They want Paul dead. But I found that he had done nothing deserving of death. As he himself appealed to the emperor, 
I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and desperately, and all desperately, especially, excuse me, before you, King Agrippa, so that after they have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems unreasonable sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges that are against him. So this is kind of funny. Here Festus says, hey, I've had this guy in prison. I'm going to send him to Caesar, but I don't really have any charges to, to send him with. Now, there was a lot of charges against Paul when you think about it. They said this, they said that, they said the other thing, but there's no eyewitnesses, so nothing stuck. They got nada against Paul. And so here's the, the fourth trial. Nothing is sticking on the way of evidence. And so they're really, this is all in a hope that something will come out. Acts 26, verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. Verse 2, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today. And against all the accusations of the Jews. Here's my second point for us this morning. Point number two, always be ready. To tell others why you follow Jesus. This is what Paul said. He stood up, he raised his hand, he said, I'm ready. I'm ready to give a defense. Do you remember what the Apostle Peter said back in 1 Peter? Peter once said, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Well, guess what? Paul is ready. So that means you and I, we should be ready. This is the greatness of the story. Here's Paul, and Paul is on trial, but he turns a trial into a testimony. Paul turns opposition into an opportunity. Paul uses all of this to glorify God. Because he's using a trial where he could face the death penalty as an opportunity to tell people about Jesus. Paul's going to share the gospel. He's always, no matter what situation is, no matter how dark things are, Paul is always telling people about Jesus. And I think he learned this from Jesus. Because Jesus was like that. Do you remember there was a day when, when Jesus went to a well at noontime and a, a lady from Samaria came to get water? And, and Jesus took that opportunity to speak to her about living water. Jesus says, if you drink from this water, you'll thirst again. But if you drink from the water that I give you, you'll never thirst. Jesus used moments to share the gospel. There was a day when the crowds came to Jesus and he preached the gospel and they're hungry. So Jesus took a little boy's sack lunch and broke it, blessed it, multiplied it and fed the multitudes. And he used that as an opportunity to teach the crowds about the bread of life. And so you and I, we always need to be ready to give a witness to never be caught off guard, to always go, uh, to be ready to give an offense. And that's not just for adults. This is for kids too. We should train our children to do this because you know what happens is so often is kids are brought up in this little sterile church environment, never having to question their, their, their faith. Well, I would encourage my kids, question it to the nth degree. Dig as deep as you possibly can because all you uncover is more and more truth. That Jesus really is God come in the flesh. And he really did do the things that the Bible said he, he did. Because if we don't teach our children to do this, guess what? Eventually, 
They graduate high school and they've got good grades. They're going to go to college. And there they'll, they'll finally meet the opposition. They will make them question everything that they've never learned to defend why they believe what they believe. Well, that's what Paul did. Paul was ready to give a defense. And, and he's heard all these stories before. But this is what Paul does. He pulls out his testimony. You and I, we have a personal testimony if you are saved, you, you have a personal testimony. You, you've got how you got saved, and we need to have a short version. Something you could tell like in, in 60 seconds in passing. You need to have a medium-length version of your story where you can tell somebody over coffee, and then you need to have the long, full-blown version where you tell somebody over, over a course of a dinner. And we need to do this because if you're a Christian, if you're saved, you have a point of view that Unbelievers just simply don't have. Because you have what you know where they used to be. And, and you know where you are now. So this is what you can say. This is who I was. This is my story. And this is all that happened to me. And this is how Jesus brought me to where I am today. And this is what Jesus is doing in my life now. And none of this is because of me. And it's all because of Jesus. And I would encourage you, don't just stop with your testimony, but also be able to go to the Bible and show how your testimony lines up perfectly with Scripture. And when you can do that, then you're ready to give a defense. Acts 26, verse 3. Especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jew. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation of Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, that I lived as a Pharisee. Paul is saying, hey, these guys that are accusing me, they know my background. They know who I was. They're saying, they're very familiar to me because I was one of them. I was a Pharisee. That's what Paul is trying to get across to Agrippa. There was a day when Paul said, I advanced in Judaism beyond all my contemporaries. Paul said, I was a Hebrew of Hebrew. Keep reading verse 6. And now I stand here on trial because my hope of the promise made by God to our fathers to which the twelve tribes hope to attain as earnestly worship night and day. And for this I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it? thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem, not only locked up many saints in prison after receiving authority from the, the chief priests, but, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. In the raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul is giving his testimony here. He's saying, this is who I was. This is the awful things I used to do. And in a moment, he's going to tell us how that all changed. I had somebody once tell me, this was a, a church person, come up and say, you know, Pastor John, we shouldn't give our testimonies. We shouldn't tell anybody about our past because our past is in the past. Behold, all things are new. And what I would say to that, well, if it's good enough for the Apostle Paul, it should be good enough for us. 
And think about it, Paul didn't only do this once. This is like the third or fourth time that we're reading about this in the book of Acts. And I think Paul did this all the time. Every time he went anywhere, anytime he met somebody new, he said, Hey, there was a day I was on the road to Damascus and suddenly a bright light. I think that was Paul's story all the time. Because Paul's conversion story it was huge. It was a pivotal point that drove the Pharisees and the Sadducees to hate Paul with a, a raging fury to two years later they still want him dead. And that's why they want to kill him. Because he used to be one of them. But now he believes that Jesus of Nazareth is the Jewish Messiah, the Savior of the world. So here's what I want to say to that. If you know anybody that you think, man, they're too far gone. There, there's just no saving them. There's too much water under the bridge. Why wouldn't you consider the Apostle Paul? Because Paul was the worst of the worst of the worst. And then he met Jesus. So what happened? Look, let's look at what happened to the Apostle Paul. Verse number 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority in the commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun, and it shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And we had fallen to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Have you ever walked out of a, a dark room? Maybe you're at a, a movie and, or a fancy lunch or something, and you walk out and, of that dark room into the brightness of the day. You notice how your eyes, it takes a while for them to dilate? That's not what happened to the Apostle Paul. This happened in the middle of the day. The bright light shined, and he saw the Shekinah glory of Jesus Christ. It was so bright that it knocked him to the ground, him and the guys are with him. And the question that Jesus asked Saul, he said, Saul, Saul, it's a term of endearment. Anytime God says your name twice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goats. In case you don't remember what a goat is, we spoke about this earlier in our, in our series through Acts, but it's essentially a, sh- a long stick with a sharp point. And if you have an animal that's being stubborn, you poke, poke it. And if you poke it hard enough, it's going to move. But sometimes you get a stubborn animal that you poke it and they kick at it. Well, they kick against the goads and it hurts. And there's some animals, they're just not that smart. They keep kicking and they keep kicking and they keep kicking against the goads. Well, Jesus says that's Paul. Well, what are the goads that, that Jesus is talking about in Paul's life? Well, I think there's two. And the first goad, I think, is the spread of the gospel. How there's more and more people coming to faith in Jesus Christ, even though terrible things are happening to them. They're being put in prison, they're, they're dying, they're starving to death, but still more and more people are saying that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. I think that was a goad for the Apostle Paul. And the second goad, I think, is a deacon by the name of Stephen. Because if you back up to Acts chapter 7, you can read it if you want to. There was a deacon named Stephen, and he preached one of the best Old Testament Bible studies you've ever heard. Saul of Tarsus was there that day. And he held the coats of the men that would take rocks so they could get a good swing and, and throw and hit Stephen in the head. Saul was there that day. And he, he knew what the, the Old Testament meant when, when Stephen said what he, what he said. 
When he said that he sees the Son of Man, he knew that that is Daniel chapter 7. God coming in the flesh. Paul was an accomplice to murder to that deacon named Stephen, and he heard the very words when Stephen said, Behold, I, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Saul of Tarsus knew what that term, Son of Man, meant. And he very well knew what the term Lord meant. And he watched with his own eyes Stephen die with grace. See, the, I think the testimony of Stephen, it, it pricked Saul of Tarsus's conscience. He wrestled with it. He's not able to get rid of it. And so Paul is now telling the king, this is what happened to me. He's saying, I was struggling. I was wrestling with this. And the Lord Jesus appeared to me on this road in this bright light and asked me, why is it hard to kick against the goads? Verse 15. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which I, uh, you have seen me. And to those to which I appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified in faith by me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and all through the, the region of Judea, and also the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. This is the reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had to help that comes from God. So I stand here and testify, both small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ might suffer. And that being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. That's the gospel. Paul preached the gospel to this king. He preached about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul talked about what he believed and why he believed what he believes. Keep reading, verse 24. And as he was saying these things, his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things. And to him he's... I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice. And this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in short time you would have persuaded me to be a Christian. And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God, not that only that... that you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then King arose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had drawn 
they, had saw, they said to uh, one another, This man is doing nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he not appealed to Caesar. Here's my third and final point for us this morning. Point number three. Christianity seems like insanity to some. Right? Did you hear what Festus said to Paul? He said, you're nuts. You're crazy. Festus said, your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Festus said, hey, Paul, all that time you're spending with your head buried in your scrolls, it's rotting your brain. Paul says, I'm not out of my mind. He said, hey, king, what I've told you, you know it's true. Remember that King Agrippa has tons of exposure to the gospel because of the whole Herod family and their, their interaction with Christianity. And he heard it, and he knew it. But here's the problem. Agrippa never allowed the gospel to transform his heart. Agrippa essentially said, you almost had me, Paul. You almost had me. I don't know about you, but I read the words of Agrippa, and it really makes me sad. Because there's someone that is that close to heaven, and they reject it, and they choose their sin and said. Basically, Paul would say, hey, I would beg you, I would plead with you, I'd do anything if you would accept Jesus. You know, Paul meant that. After all, he just spent two years in prison just so he could preach the gospel to these three people. And sadly, they rejected it. Paul stood and gave the clearest gospel presentation that anybody could possibly give. And I would do the same. But sadly, Agrippa, Bernice, Festus, they rejected the gospel. Agrippa knew the gospel. He knew it in his head. But he never allowed it to transform his heart. You know, I've heard it said that so often people miss heaven by about 18 inches. The distance from your head to your heart. And Paul said, I would beg, I would plead, I would do anything if you would accept the gospel. You know what? I would say the same. I would do anything this side of sin to, if you're an unbeliever, to get you to believe, but I can't. All I can do is I can preach the gospel, and then you choose. And so I'm going to do that right here, right now. I'm going to preach the gospel, and then you have a choice. You have a choice to either accept it or reject it, but you choose. And the gospel is that you are made wonderfully by God. And he knew you in your mother's womb when he was knitting you together, but every single one of us has sinned. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wage of sin is death, that we're all going to die, but that word death, it means spiritual death. We are all separated from God spiritually. And the wage of sin is, is death, and the worse than that, there's nothing that we can do about it. We can't ever undo the sin of our past. We can't pay for our sin with some kind of good works. But the Bible also says, yet while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus came and paid the price that we cannot pay. And the Bible says, whoever calls the name of the Lord, they will be saved. If you've never called on Jesus to save you, I'd beg you, I'd plead with you, just like Paul would, for you to do that now. To say, dear Lord... I'm a sinner. The things I've done, it separates me from God, but yet you sent your one and only son to die in my place, to take my punishment. Save me of my sins. I give you my life. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.